Welcome to Offshoot, the Fight and Capital podcast with host Kevin Choquette. Offshoot is a curiosity-driven conversation that features a wide range of real estate and business professionals. In each episode, we unpack the knowledge, vantage point, and domain expertise of our guests. Then, we move beyond the facts and figures and dive into the personal habits and mindset which allow them to be high performers in their respective field. This podcast's objective is simple. Supporting entrepreneurs, fostering relationships, and uncovering meaningful conversations that positively impact business. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 13 of Offshoot with Ms. Jennifer Hernandez, a land use attorney from Holland and Knight. Jennifer is a remarkable human being. She expertly and fluidly draws connections between the flaws of California's Environmental Quality Act and the rights of its citizenry to have attainable shelter. CEQA is no longer utilized to protect the environment from pollutants, nor to protect open space. Instead, it's employed by a wide array of special interest groups to advance ulterior motives. As Jennifer puts it, CEQA is used by someone who has money to stop what you're doing. The act's abuse effectively stops development, secures project labor agreements for local unions, and stops competition from establishing a foothold. It also provides bounty hunting lawyers fertile ground to extort cash from developers before allowing their projects to advance. There's a lot in this one. Listen in as Jennifer explores humility and the fact that no matter what you know, there's a lot that you don't. Listen and observe as your narrow expertise isn't going to cover it all. The role that a home played for her mother and grandmother in tough times and why that's worth protecting. How CEQA, if you take it in its strictest read, would like to freeze California in 1972, the time that the law was enacted. How government agency discretion, plus any potential change to the environment, are enough to trigger CEQA. Plus, where you can find categorical or statutory exemptions from the act. The fact that only 13% of CEQA complaints come from entities which predated that complaint, meaning that 87% are filed by entities created just for the CEQA challenge. How CEQA challengers need not identify themselves or their relationship to the project. How bounty hunting lawyers employ bots to monitor the internet for new environmental impact reports in order to leach from the associated project, how affordable housing is just a complete mess, and how not understanding a politician is their problem, not yours. Insist on policies and politics that make sense. I hope you enjoy the pod. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning into my conversation with Ms. Jennifer Hernandez. Jennifer has practiced land use and environmental law for more than 30 years and leads Holland and Knight's West Coast Land Use and Environmental Group. Holland and Knight, for context, has 1,400 employees, books over a billion dollars of annual revenue, has 28 offices around the globe, and rates in the top 50 of global law firms. Jennifer works for private sector, public agency, and nonprofit clients on a broad range of projects, including infill and master plan mixed-use housing and commercial projects, university and research facilities, transportation and infrastructure projects, and local agency plan and ordinance updates. She's written three books and more than 50 articles on environmental and land use topics, regularly teaches land use, environmental and climate law, in law and business schools, colleges, and seminars. Jennifer graduated with honors from Harvard University and Stanford Law School. She's the daughter and granddaughter of steelworkers and was raised in Pittsburgh, California. She and her husband live in Berkeley and Los Angeles. <clears throat> I first had the pleasure of hearing Jennifer speak in 2018 at an annual real estate conference hosted by the University of San Diego. She blew my mind with an unbelievable expose that revealed the flaws and faults of the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA, in a way that was and is unforgettable. If ignorance is bliss, I'm now well and truly on the other side of that, knowing that CEQA, with its lovely name, really has very little to do with protecting the environment. Jennifer, I'm very excited to speak with you. Thanks for joining me on the show and welcome. Thank you so much, Kevin. It's a real pleasure to join you and I'm glad uh, uh, you seem like a converted sequin nerd. So uh, I've got a button for you, sequin nerd. 
uh, that'll be in the mail uh, after this. <laughs> perfect. Well, with, with that, that's actually a perfect segue. I, I think I, um, this is a strained analogy, but have you ever heard of the, the gold king mine in Colorado? No. All right. So 2014, the EPA decides that this defunct mine in Silverton, Colorado needs to be remediated. So they cap it because it had been putting low level tailings into the Animas River for you know decades. And they send a contractor out from Missouri the following year, 2015, who's supposed to check on the cap and see how things are, are going. And he brings the front loader up to the cap and starts pawing at it. And the cap just blows off and 3 million gallons of uh, basically oh hazardous God. waste goes flowing into the river. But the point of that story is I feel like I'm the front load operator talking to you with 30 years <laughs> of CEQA expertise. So I'm just going to try to get out of the way and, and let you talk. Um, but but seriously, I do hope to create a venue for for your expertise to, to shine through. And before we get you know deep into CEQA, which I'm sure we will, um, could you just tell us a bit about yourself and your practice? Sure. So uh, I've been at this now a long time. Uh, I've uh, entered my 38th year of law practice, which is many years. Um, I only know one thing, uh, but I know it well. And that's the uh, arena of California environmental uh, and land use law, um, really stuff uh, that the government either regulates or requires um, you to get permits uh, to, to, you know, to do activities. Uh, relating to the physical environment here in California. And uh, that's kind of what I grew up with uh, in terms of my environment. Um, uh, Pittsburgh, California was a factory town. Uh, it was kind of the New Jersey of the Bay Area, if I could uh, misuse an analogy. It's named Pittsburgh because it, it changed its name to Wu U.S. Steel. Uh, to open its first plant out in Pittsburgh. We had Dow Chemical, um, Union Carbide, uh, John Mansville, sort of the titans of, uh, of uh, United States manufacturers. And all the dads worked in factories and they played intramural baseball and bowled um, and the kids went to school and the mom stayed home. And so that's where I grew up. Um, and it was an incredibly polluted environment. Um, uh, we all had weird uh, rashes, um, uh, endemic, quote, allergies. Uh, uh, the river uh, that ran through the town uh, had a perpetual uh, sheen of uh, rainbow kind of uh, iridescence on, the, on any part of the river that was still because there was so much chemical uh, content in the river. Uh, I didn't like it. Um, I and many of my peers had asthma or other um, uh, afflictions. Um, and who likes pollution? No one really. And so I went to law school uh, after an extraordinary uh, kind of golden ticket, uh, lottery ticket winner in the United States as a full ride to Harvard University, which I got uh, as a senior in high school. And then uh, same um, uh, arrangement to, to go to Stanford Law School. I think one of the most important things, though, to know about me is um, my dad, uh, who was a, a solid dude, really just a good guy, and uh, as is my mom and uh, brother and sister. But, you know, he would periodically peer up at me and say things, actually one thing in particular, Jennifer, for being so smart, you sure can be stupid sometimes. <laughs> and he was exactly right. Because no matter how smart anyone is on anything, they're likely to not be as smart on something else. Mm -hmm. And if you lose the sense of humility and the sense of responsibility to listen and observe and, and respect those around you, then you're not very smart at all. I don't care what the issue is. Um, so when I got out of law school and decided to practice environmental law, it was with the idea of you know protecting the environment. That's what it was all about. Um, only after just uh, a few months as a lawyer, uh, my dad in his late 50s uh, was permanently laid off from U.S. Steel uh, uh, as part of a kind of late-breaking Rust Belt uh, phenomenon that hit um, California as it had hit the rest of the country. And suddenly all kinds, thousands and thousands and thousands of good union jobs with paid vacations and medical coverage uh, disappeared. And uh, my sister was still in 
uh, college. My brother had become a welder. Um, and uh, suddenly we went from what we thought of at least as a middle-class family into one that struggled. And um, I'll tell you the main secret sauce of success, um, both for my Mexican and Sicilian grandmothers who lived more than 20 years as widows on U.S. pensions, um, U.S. steel pensions and Social Security, and for my parents, what saved them was home ownership. And uh, what we lost in California over the last 30 or so years is accessible home ownership to working uh, families, um, median income, hardworking families uh, who make too much to get low-income housing, which we don't have enough of anyway, and not nearly enough to work anywhere close to where they live. And we've just literally watched the state social fabric crumble around us as wealthier communities uh, become wealthier still. Um, wealthy kids in those communities only know each other uh, and working families end up living further and further away, more and more isolated and frankly, more and more disrespected. And that I cannot abide. And so my sort of civil rights gene has periodically switched on uh, when, as it turns out, um, California's famously stringent environmental legal regime is turned against its own people. And that's what we have here with the California Environmental Quality Act, which turns against people who need housing, who need working transportation solutions, and who frankly need water and sewage treatment and all the normal stuff that you take for granted unless you decide that California should be, you know, kind of put in amber and flash frozen in about 1970 when the Brady Bunch was in first run uh, <laughs> and the state had half as many people. And anything that we change to that, you know, impeccable um, and illusory past is a, quote, adverse impact, whether it's adding more kids to the Cal campus in Berkeley or it's, God forbid, renovating a school to replace old-fashioned light bulbs with LED light bulbs. Those are real-life examples of California Environmental Quality Act CEQA lawsuits aimed by actual people, sometimes economic competitors, sometimes unions, sometimes even anonymous parties who just don't want to renovate that library, gosh darn it, and they go to court using environmental law to stop it. And that's also a real case. And this is ridiculous. Well, look, and I have enough exposure to this domain to understand what you're saying. But to the less initiated, that's kind of, hey, I thought we were talking about the California Environmental Quality Act. Isn't that something that is uh, protecting the environment from profiteering and, and private interests that would otherwise be sort of flogging the natural resource base. Um, you know, I, I know how you get there, but I think the humility that you hint to probably is a huge part of this too, right? Recognizing that the narrow view of this wasn't the right view and it's zooming out and seeing the, the broad scope implications of how CEQA is used that you can, you know, sort of get the perspective that you have, but maybe help, you know, what do you mean? I thought it, I thought this thing protected the the environment. How how do you how do you get to housing from like and civil rights from CEQA? What a great question! Um, you have to really go to law school and then cynically manipulate the law for thirty years to figure that out. <laughs> I can give you a shortcut. Um, so uh, uh, CEQA applies uh, when a government agency, state, local, regional makes a discretionary decision, a decision they can either say yes or no to, or frankly say, yeah, but only if, and add a bunch of conditions. If they make a discretionary decision to approve a project or fund a project, then they have to first stop and look at the environmental consequences of what they're about to do. And if there are significant adverse consequences to the environment from what they're about to do, they're obligated to actually try to minimize or avoid those significant environmental consequences. All sounds great. That's what CEQA is. That's not what it is in practice. In practice, an environmental analysis is required for, let's pick a more recent example, installing one single toilet 
on a park where toilet plumbing is already in existence in San Francisco in a cost for that one single toilet that the city of San Francisco estimated at $1.7 million. And why does CEQA apply to the installation of a single toilet in a park? Well, because the agency, San Francisco, doesn't have to approve it, so it's discretionary. The state's gonna fund it. The state doesn't have to fund it, so it's discretionary, okay. So now it is a project. There's no small, there's no too small a project. It's a project, construction project, that's gonna result in a 150 square foot single toilet that CEQA applies to. A, a very nice toilet for $1.7 million. What one could hope, but <laughs> one, one, one need not. It would also take, by the way, three years. So yeah. uh, to complete. Um, but that's a that's a uh, an example of uh, how small, if you will, the project uh, at issue needs to be. Uh-huh. Um, and then it's also the case that uh, the term environment has gotten so elastic, and has so little, uh, uh, so few legal boundaries that. Really, we still fight about it all the time as to what it even is. Is this an impact to the environment? Is the act of driving a car one mile an impact to the environment? Well, you know, maybe, I don't know, the car is going to emit some air pollution. Uh, Well, what if it's an electric car? Well, yeah, but, you know, there's still going to be tires on the road. Well, why do we care if there's tires on the road? Well, because microscopic particles of tires could get washed into drains which wash into streams which poison fish well okay does that happen and does it happen for a mile of driving and by the way does it really matter if what you're doing is building an apartment building which should allow people to drive less because otherwise they're going to have to drive longer to further away locations well that's not how we look at it any change caused by any project to the existing environment Examples, humans cause environmental impacts, not just in the case of, for example, driving a car, but also taking a shower. You're using water and you're creating sewage. Uh, How about kids going to school? You're impacting a school. How about people using libraries or parks? You're impacting public services and facilities. How about, I don't know, needing to uh, uh, look a certain way. Well, what do you mean look a certain way? How's that the environment? Well, that's aesthetics. Aesthetics is a big part of the environment. How about shade and shadow? Well, wait, how is that the environment? Well, it's the environment. You're creating microclimates. Microclimates by building an apartment block or apartment building uh, next to single family homes is going to cast a different shadow profile on the backyards of existing homes. How is that an environment? It is an environmental impact. We have this notion of the environment is everything, and we're so far off from CEQA's original intent, which was to protect people from harmful levels of pollutants, and also to protect California's fantastic actual environment, like beautiful natural spaces, Yosemite and whatnot. You know, everybody kind of agreed that that was a good idea. Let's stop pollution. Let's Uh, protect our incredible natural resources. But literally with 200 or so lawsuits filed each and every year for more than 50 years of CEQA's existence, um, well, more in later years, but we hit that 200 mark pretty early and it stayed stayed pretty steady. Um, That means that roughly 50 to 80 appellate court decisions are reached every year that further shape what is the environment in this 1970 law. And the answer is a little bit, I know it when I see it. It's kind of the standard of um, judicial review and, frankly, um, uncertainty uh, that surrounds the old obscenity standards. You know, what 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 makes a naked picture obscene versus not? Right. You, I know it when I see it. I know it when I see it. Mm-hmm. And that's what we get with CEQA. Judges say, I know it when I see it. Oof. There's so much here. I don't even know kind of this, this goes back to my opening comments. Um, 
what what is it that you as either citizen legal advisor or um you know business person advised it's this is such an expansive project but or or problem um how are you navigating through it i mean (laughs) I, i most people don't really know this. A lot of developers know it, but I don't think they know it with the clarity that you just spelled it out. Any project, any impact, sequa challenge. So, you know, where do, where do we go? Yeah. So I, I don't want to actually leave it with any project, any impact, sequa challenge, because actually sequa challenges, actual lawsuits happen only in some pretty uh, interesting uh, uh, circumstances. And those circumstances can be summarized as someone who has money wants to stop what you're applying to do. <laughs> and so wealthy communities that don't want apartments sue housing projects much more frequently than communities that are less wealthy who aren't suing at all, um, uh, even when the project at issue is you know, not an apartment, but is something, you know, potentially more um, environmentally impactful. Um, uh, CEQA challenges happen when economic competitors write a check to an environmental group uh, to bring a CEQA lawsuit. Um, They happen when unions decide that getting a discretionary approval from a city council or planning commission uh, is an opportunity to leverage the project into making a deal with a particular union and entering into a project labor agreement, which is not something that can be legally required uh, uh, unless there's an actual project applicant in place. Um, sequel lawsuits happen when there are deeply, deeply uh, uh, kind of local anti-growth policies uh, that simply want to stop everything. And, and everyone. Um, so, you know, Marin and Ventura counties are the two counties in California that have been, uh, you know, they're both literally next door to some of the highest performing, highest population locations in the entire country. Um, and they both have said no uh, to growth. And so they've refused to, um, you know, support water sewage infrastructure. They've refused to you know, allow new growth, and they've put aside just tons and tons and tons of land into permanent open space, all of which, by the way, Marin is the um, famously whitest county in California. It's also the wealthiest. Um, So CEQA is a powerful tool by what I'll call legacy or incumbent interests to stop change. And when it's wielded in that fashion, as it is unfortunately too often, uh, it really stops the housing uh, infrastructure, public services needed by the 20 or so million Californians who moved in after 1970. And uh, so it does have a disparate effect uh, on working um, uh, families, um, uh, uh, including the working poor. Uh, and you know we have all, all kinds of Flint Michigans in California that don't get much attention, but, you know, God help us, if you want to construct a granny unit in a wealthy neighborhood, you're going to be faced with a sequel lawsuit by a neighbor. And this might seem a little bit tangential, but I'm sure we can weave it together. Um, How do you reconcile this with the initiatives to create, quote unquote, affordable housing with, you know, these super complicated capital stacks that are, you know, tax, tax credit investors and, you know, this piece of density bonus and, you know, you end up, you end up building houses that cost more than market rate developers build houses for and call them affordable so that developers can get large fees off of the total construction costs. You mean the, uh, the, the same apartment that can be built in, uh, any number of jurisdictions for, you know, $350,000, which is already pretty high. Um, uh, if it's built in San Francisco using a hundred percent affordable um, full capital stack dispersion is going to cost closer to 1.2 million per apartment. That's the one. That's the one. Okay. So um, I want you to do a little thought experiment with me. Now I want you to go into your backyard and picture your like five favorite lawyers 
and put them in your backyard in one part of the yard. <laughs> and then I want you to go into your backyard and find the five people you use and call somewhat desperately when something in your house breaks and, and you need help. And now I want you to assign each group the task of building something. Mm, yeah. So lawyers, when we're in charge of design build, <laughs> whether it's on the environment or on capital stacks or on regulatory requirements or whatever, man, we love words. We love adding. We don't really like subtracting. Uh, there are all kinds of um, very compelling reasons, very compelling, I, I swear to you, that you know, in one of the most temperate climates in the world, that California's building code has all but shut down windows that open in mm. the name of you know, energy efficiency. Really? Is it, is it really more energy efficient in most of California, or at least the coastal part of California? to not simply open and shut your window rather than have to spend hundreds of dollars a month on, uh, on electricity, uh, uh, with, you know, uh, now the most expensive electricity in the country. Why is that a good idea? Well, I'll tell you a bunch of lawyers and policy wonks, uh, didn't talk to engineers or developers or even lenders, uh, and, uh, and just decided, uh, because we say so. But, but isn't the, uh, political momentum or, or sentiment in the state, you know, generally much more favorable to pushing forward more affordable housing projects and, and somewhat, I, I don't know, I'm not tuned into the CEQA um, log jam like you are. And what, what I see is just a whole cottage industry that thrives on the status quo, which we can get into in a moment. But why, why are we finding it appears to me there's support for affordable housing, even though it's not affordable and it costs way more than market rate guys can do it. But yet everybody's like, we need more affordable housing and nobody, well, no, nobody, I don't perceive the same sort of support for sequel reform. Yeah. So um, the most potent political um, factor preventing sequel reform in Sacramento for now some number of years has been opposition from some of the construction trade unions who do use CEQA mm. to leverage project labor agreements. And again, those are agreements with specific locals. So if you want to hire electricians, it has to be from this uh, local, not the local, you know, the county over. Um, and so, uh, and CEQA is the leverage pivot point, allowing that um, uh, tool to be uh, used. Um, there was a very significant uh, advance made this past summer uh, with Buffy Wicks's 2011, AB 2011, which had two components, a 15% affordable requirement for inclusionary housing, which is to say, uh, if you have 100 uh, units of housing, 15 of them need to be deed restricted for lower income uh, residents. Um, if you build that kind of housing with inclusionary and you you pay uh, a sort of union equivalent, but not necessarily union member uh, construction workforce. So prevailing wage, a pretty modest actually medical and 401k contribution kind of uh, 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 wage package. Uh, uh, then you are exempt from CEQA, exempt. Mm. And that is a huge break. And not only exempt from CEQA, my focus today has really been on CEQA, but there's also just the kind of endless political process of, you know, trying to persuade first staff and then the city, um, you know, planning commission member majority and then the city council majority that what you're doing is the right thing. Uh, and as long as the cities have the discretion to say no or no, I don't think that's good enough yet. Bring me another rock. Um, then the, uh, the, the permitting process on top of CEQA for just getting approval to build housing uh, creates additional opportunity to layer on cost and requirements. And uh, uh, AB 2011 really eliminates the politics of that process and tries to require, um, uh, you know, staff level approval um, for housing 
on land that is that is used or zoned for commercial parking or office, uh, but not residential. So you get to find sites. This is a big law. It takes effect in July next year. Find locations that are you know strip malls or struggling office uh, or uh, retail malls or whatever even parking lots, and without going through general plan amendments or zoning code amendments, uh, go to the counter with your housing plan and say, I want to build this and I don't need to go through CEQA and I am paying prevailing wage with the other uh, requirements, labor requirements in uh, that statute. And you guys got to approve me. And it's an approval process that's pretty darn expedited. Now there are some qualifications um, that the 15% inclusionary requirement for affordable means this is most likely going to be used in higher uh, rent markets, uh, uh, and uh, and so it's going to have some limited applicability for sure. Uh, but those higher rent markets can include some of the most housing resistant markets in the state. Uh, so we're going to see some rock and roll here come July. Is this uh, inclusionary, as in fifty percent AMI, or what is the? Um... I think it's eighty, eighty percent wow. AMI. Yeah, it's okay. low, not very low. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And you know, if you strip away the cost of the um, one of uh, one person kind of famously calls it the eco industrial complex, you know, the, the 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 mass of lawyers like me and consultants and um, you know staff members and agencies and stuff who just kind of churn this sequel machine. Um, if you strip that away, if you strip away two years of process time. And if you strip away kind of the additional costs that may be layered on as you work to get your political approvals, you know, maybe that all pencils, inclusionary plus, um, you know, prevailing wage. So uh, maybe it pencils, maybe it doesn't. It's most likely to pencil in high cost uh, jurisdictions that have been resistant to housing. And those are, of course, the ones that are going to sue to block it. And uh, so we'll have two or three years of... um, of uh, uncertainty around getting to uh, good legal decisions, uh, but we've 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 been succeeding with uh, legal decisions. Courts really have, I think, turned the corner and recognized that you know CEQA's become a monster when it's applied to environmentally benign projects like adding housing to existing neighborhoods. You know, I mean, you may not like it, but it's not an environmental harm. Please, um, so. I think we're starting to, we're definitely seeing the pendulum start to shift. Well, and you're talking about this eco-industrial complex. Um, you know, I, I I think I saw somewhere else like the CEQA industrial machine. Um, I know in San Diego, there's, there's, I don't even know if I want to name them, but there are a few groups who build their livelihood on making CEQA challenges. And it's my suspicion, I can't, tell you that I've done the research, I know that you and your team have, that the vast majority of those don't go to trial, um, but they hold up the developer and end up in almost like a payola. um, Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Taking a fee and getting out of the way. And a lot of them aren't even real groups. They're, They're either an affiliate of a law firm and they were, you know, the same shareholders plus a few randoms or just a single person who has a, a new entity that's, you know, preserve wild, whatever. And they're grouping up together. And it's just, it's just extortion, candidly. Like, I don't think they have any interest, although if, I'm sure if I had them on the podcast, they would correct me. I don't know that they have any real environmental interest. They're just profiteering. Yeah, so that that has been confirmed and it actually confirmed under oath uh, uh, by a couple of the um, players in what I call the bounty hunter space. There you go. Um, and uh, and unfortunately, California has a pretty long tradition of misconduct by lawyers. Um, uh, famously, for example, uh, uh, small business owners, especially immigrants, uh, who have not retrofitted you know, the bathroom in the back of the dry cleaners that their employees use to be uh, uh, accessible for the disabled um, are a classic target of a law firm that simply finds those kind of small businesses, 
sues and then grabs, you know, 20 grand or whatever they can extort and goes um, to the next victim. Um, and it's not like there's, there's the space or the financial capacity to spend, you know, $80,000 on a bathroom retrofit um, uh, at that small business marginal level, but that's a form of bounty hunting that is particularly um, well-known and, and frankly heinous. Um, and it's been, a, uh, to their credit, it's been challenged um, uh, and, and those lawyers have uh, had some consequences. Um, some of those lawyers have had some consequences. Um, CEQA is much too politically charged um, for the state uh, enforcers at the bar or at the attorney general uh, to come down hard on, uh, on CEQA abuse in the litigation context. Um, in every other environmental law across the country, including uh, NEPA, which is the grandfather of CEQA by about nine months, uh, the, the national version of NEPA or of CEQA, um, uh, you have to identify who you, to sue under normal environmental law, you have to identify who you are and disclose what your standing is. Uh, uh, that is what particular harm you are going to suffer through your exposure to air pollution or other sort of environmental consequences in order to file a lawsuit. California uses a different model, which basically uh, deputizes anyone in California to just on their own go, quote, enforce CEQA. And that means those lawsuits can be anonymous. You don't have to disclose who's in the group. They don't have any particular standing requirement, although we're chipping away at that. So you can just say, I'm here representing, I'll use one of your favorites in San Diego, Creed 97. And who is Creed 97? Well, we don't know. Um, when we first did our CEQA research, we looked up kind of who the parties are that bring CEQA lawsuits using the following highly scientific method. We would do a Google search right. on whoever is filing <laughs> the CEQA lawsuit. And if there was any evidence that that entity existed uh, as an environmental advocacy group before challenging the lawsuit, we, put, we, we decided they were legitimate environmental advocacy groups. Whether they were or not, we didn't care. We just said, did they pre-exist this current lawsuit tactic? And, and using that very rough tool, we found that only 13% of CEQA lawsuits were filed by anything like a legitimate environmental organization. I'm not talking just like the Sierra Club or something, but even a neighborhood association with a prior track record of filing CEQA lawsuits, we gave the benefit of the doubt and called a real environmental group. The rest of them, you know, 87% were filed by, in some cases, individuals, in other cases, anonymous sounding enviro mental, maybe not quite, you know, committee to save the whatever. Right. Preserve the whatever. And they, in many cases, we then looked at who the lawyers were. There's a lot of overlapping lawyers. And then there was plenty of press around one of the lawyers in San Diego who made an unsuccessful run for mayor. Um, uh, but, you know, plenty of, uh, as it turns out, uh, press, uh, not well publicized outside the local jurisdiction, usually about the extortionate tactics of uh, uh, of the lawyers who uh, just routinely sued to block everything under CEQA. And if you follow the money, and I'm not sure that that's as easily audited as a Google search, but, you know, I mean, my clients on the, you know, candidly, the, the more difficult it has become for projects to get approved, the less likely developers are to take them on, which, you know, fully yeah. feeds into the whole issue of the housing shortage and what's happening with rents and affordability and home prices. Um, so I'm seeing less sequa stuff because <laughs> guys don't like to get punched in the face over and over, but I do see it regularly enough where there's just a challenge and you know, again, if you follow the money, it appears to me that they're just standing there until they get paid and then they go away. That's certainly um, a, a frequent outcome. Um, 
I do though want to pivot um, briefly to um, how you you can and we do now sidestep the worst of this um, uh, for um, housing. Which is a ray of, of hope there. would be good. A ray of hope. Okay. <laughs> so here's a couple truths. Um, I can't find a speck of California that hasn't had some level of prior CEQA document, EIR or otherwise, already completed. CEQA is triggered by general plan amendments, by zoning code amendments, by specific plans, by community plans, by uh, district plans, by, uh, I mean, there, there are now layers of EIRs, environmental impact reports, or negative declarations, or addenda to either EIRs or negative declarations all over California. They're just all there. <laughs> and many of them, thankfully, now are online. Also, there's um, over 30 uh, regulatory exemptions from CEQA and another 30, 35 statutory exemptions from CEQA that are very uh, narrowly drawn, but nevertheless, uh, you know, have uh, some utility. So typically what we now do, um, uh, unless there's just overwhelming uh, reasons not to, is we find a categorical or statutory exemption to wedge the project into, and that sometimes means the project is um, is different, right? A, a, a planner comes up with a zoning code, they adopt an ordinance, it applies to a location. Somebody comes and looks at the location and says, wow, we could really go another floor here, or we could, you know, there's no way we can do subsurface parking with these economics, but you know, if you let us do tandem parking, then we'll do something different. Anyway, everybody wants to kind of design for a particular location in a way that deviates a little bit from what's allowed. And when you do that, you can't use some of these exemptions. So it's like a business judgment. How much is it worth to try to get what you think of as the maximum value for the, um, you know, for the site? versus do you want to take advantage of one of these, we call them CEQA streamlining tools, either exemptions or very short form uh, checklists or addenda, they're called, which are kind of expanded checklists, saying this project is not going to have any new or worse impacts than what we previously looked at when we updated the general plan or housing element or something. And so because it has no new or worse significant impacts, we're just going to go ahead and build it. And that form of CEQA compliance and addenda or a finding that one of the exemptions applies does not trigger the three-step public review and comment process that um, uh, EIRs uh, trigger. So um, we are often, not always, but often able to keep the CEQA piece of this puzzle down to a semi-rational, you know, eight to 12 months as opposed to two or three years uh, and run it alongside the rest of the approval process and have some risk of there being a lawsuit, but a lot less risk than if you're doing a full-blown environmental impact report, which CEQA troll um, uh, bots now look for and harvest from internet searches and then generate a whole suite of consequences in terms of extortionate use of CEQA. So that's an example uh, of how we're, we're coping with CEQA now. We're also in CEQA cases, we're not shy about saying, look, you know, your honor, of course you and I, we both went to law school, think of CEQA as a giant essay question. And it's a thousand pages of an EIR and imagine getting 99% right, but one thing wrong and having to go back to the drawing board, that's not fair, Your Honor. And we would ask, given the housing crisis, that you not send us back to the drawing board for minor errors or omissions, especially since we don't even know what the boundaries are of what this law required. I mean, imagine if you had to like take a, a running guess at what you owed in taxes every year, you know, that's kind of like trying to figure out what environmental impacts are under CEQA. It's like, I don't know, what do you think? Uh, and each consultant and lawyer has their own little views and whatnot. Um, so uh, that's kind of an overly long answer to the question is, can you navigate through it? Yeah, absolutely. And can you win lawsuits? Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, and look, as, 
as this space gets more complex, the the you know to the victor goes the spoils, right? It it can be very lucrative to take a piece of of greenfield. Well, in a lot of cases, we're not even talking about greenfields, but um, and push it through a process and and get to an approval. But you know, sort of a tangential question to what you're saying, and I appreciate that there's a way to get the puck in the goal. Like it's good, and obviously, people like you and your expertise are you know, part of the team you put together to actually navigate these complexities, but higher level, should developers really even take on greenfield development in California at this point? I mean, do they get paid adequately for the risk would be another way of asking that. Yeah. I mean, I I think unfortunately um, the answer was a more comfortable yes before the latest interest rate adjustments. Right. Um, and uh, also with supply chain and labor cost issues and availability, labor availability issue, it's it's gotten more rather than less complicated. Um, uh, you know, I do think that one good use of recessions uh, uh, has been in at least past cycles to go ahead and get your approvals straightened out. So when the markets returned, come back, uh, yeah. you're, you're able to be in the ground rather than, you know, start the gauntlet of playing with lawyers and consultants again. Um, so, uh, but when it's possible to actually break ground, uh, we're seeing, for example, you know, we, we have lots more entitled housing in San Francisco uh, with none of them breaking ground because it's just too expensive um, uh, for, you know, market rate fully Christmas treed up uh, you know, projects approved over the last couple, three years. Uh, uh, That's class A multifamily or, or for sale yeah. housing? Uh, Multi. Class A multifamily. There's there's very little for sale in that space. There are some really, really luxury condos, but those are also, um, you know, not financially penciling very comfortably in central business districts anymore. Um, the whole remote work uh, evolution has uh, created a premium value for single family or suburban scale um, housing um, where there's a little extra space um, and uh, uh, you know the pricing for that kind of housing in and outside California has skyrocketed um, as Californians who had been paying either high urban rents or had very expensive um, but small urban um, homes uh, kind of fled uh, to lower cost areas uh, where they had more room. So I think I, one thing about um, the kind of real estate market generally uh, uh, in 38 years is it's always evolving. It's for that matter, I think really fun. It's challenging, um, uh, but it's also periodically just brutal. And I haven't seen the brutality yet. Um, uh, but I don't think it's too far away, especially in B and C class office and, uh, yeah. and retail. Yeah. Well, um, shifting away a bit to kind of the more personal side, um, in this 38 years, what's the, the one thing you might be most proud of having accomplished within your law practice? You know, we have just a fantastic team. There's 25 of us, um, including a lot of um, younger people. It's it, For us, I think it, it really is pretty mission-driven. Um, uh, we're proud and protective of the California environment, but um, we don't see that as being irreconcilable with, you know, having places for people to live, having effective, you know, systems of transportation or water or, uh, and, uh, uh, and certainly, you know, uh, jobs. Um, personally, I think, you know, my focus has remained for a very long time now uh, on families that are often ignored uh, by policymakers who, as my dad would say, you know, for being so smart, they could sure be stupid sometimes. Um, and I use the example of, you know, restrictions on windows that open in the name of, you know, climate change in uh, temperate climates as just being, are you guys kidding? Do you really mm -hmm. think that families have an extra two, three, four, five hundred dollars a month to spend on electricity uh, and changing filters and everything else rather than simply opening or closing the, the window? Um, and uh, uh, I do think um, uh, it's, it's, it's been 
really, really, really challenging. Um, California is, as you know, a very blue state. People think of themselves as progressive, pro-civil rights, which in this uh, environment now means mostly pro-environmental justice, which is just a subset of civil rights. It doesn't take into account housing or transportation or jobs or education or prison reform or any number of other things. Um, but, you know, um, folks really righteously think that uh, all we need is housing for homeless individuals and, uh, and low-income housing and uh, everybody else is fine. And the answer is nobody else is fine unless you're uber wealthy. My two grandmothers and my family uh, confronted with very much inevitable job losses, illnesses, injuries, they owned a home every month they paid money toward their home. When they needed it, they had the value in that home. And even without California's crazy escalation of real estate prices, which by the way, didn't really happen in Pittsburgh for obvious reasons, Pittsburgh, California, um, uh, they saved money. And, and our system has now uh, in California completely uh, 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 kicked to the, to the curb the idea of attainable home ownership. And I think that's quite uh, uh, shameful. Uh, and uh, to do it in the name of the environment is absolutely inexcusable. So yeah. And look, the bad. difference too, I mean, just getting into a house with a 30-year fixed mortgage, and you have, in one of the papers that I've flipped through over the weekend, um, there was something referencing like 70 times greater household wealth or family wealth for families that own homes versus those that are renters, just getting into pick a year and get your 30 year mortgage and don't touch it. And yep. your rent has been the same for however many years back you entered into that mortgage agreement while everybody else has dealt with you. You tell me three to 13% rent escalations, depending on what the macro economic climate's doing. I mean, it is, unfortunate and it feels like one of the the big wedges between you know the, the the class divide candidly well and it's a it's a wedge and a frankly i think civil rights violation perpetrated by progressive liberal democrats in the name of the environment against everybody else and uh and that's not okay uh in my in my judgment um so uh that's kind of my mission here uh in the you know twilight uh not quite but at least uh uh nearing sunset part of my career uh and it's uh it's 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 inconceivable to me that in blue california i'm having to fight the governor and a good bit of the legislature and a ton of environmental agencies who just make it impossible for working families to thrive here well, what's what's hard for me is is your message is not that of the, if you will, money grubbing Republican, right? You're like, hey guys, housing, human rights, like we need shelter. That doesn't seem like it should be at odds with a left leaning. Uh, Depends. I mean, you 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 don't live, you know, as a Democrat um, in Berkeley. I'm kind of on the far right of the spectrum. For uh, sure. Uh, For sure. You know, I have to deal with people who don't believe in public uh, or in uh, private property um, right. and want to just kind of topple the capitalist system and are fine about, you know, tossing democracy over for. Uh, a wise autocracy that, you know, of course, they assume they will benefit from. And I'm like, dudes, in what autocracy can you name would it have been possible for your parents to buy a home? Tell me, mm. give, give me that example. Because everybody, all these intellectual, you know, sort of idealists, um, they think that they're going to remake the world into some, I don't know, um, uh, uh, lettuce eating nirvana. <laughs> and instead, when, when, you, when you topple what does work or, and has worked now for a couple hundred years, more or less with lots of warts and lots of room for improvement. Um, when you topple that, you're much more likely to end up with like just a bully who is, shall we say, not focused on um, equity or inclusion. Yeah. Uh, so, but you know, shut up boomer, right? 
<laughs> I doubt it. Um, in in looking at your resume, I see a whole bunch of public service and and give back, um, a bunch of professional organizations, nonprofits, academic institutions. Um, kind of two part question: Why do you do it, and how do you balance that against all of your professional demands? Well, like I say, I got this golden ticket uh, as a 17-year-old sitting in Pittsburgh uh, with a full-ride scholarship to Harvard that came with plane trips and winter clothes. Uh, uh, I'm still giving giving back because, uh, uh, boy, did that pay forward. Um, so, and I'd like to also make continue, I hope, to, to make this message uh, clear that just because someone starts life in a, you know, in a tough circumstance, whether it's pollution or job loss or whatever, uh, much worse, um, uh, there is hope. Uh, but then on the other side, I am really quite furious with, uh, uh, with those who insist on a their way or the highway, you know, route to ending capitalism and scorning homeownership. I'm like, first you and your parents and grandparents give up your homes and your trust funds. And then you tell me why a union member shouldn't be able to buy a house near where they live. I do not respect that perspective. And I know it makes people uncomfortable if that's what they deeply believe. Um, but, you know, that is just maybe a generational change. Or maybe it's because I'm Mexican and Sicilian, you know, I'm okay with conflict. I don't think it's generational. I think if you pulled yourself out of the Berkeley uh, surroundings, I mean, just anecdotally, I remember listening to public radio out of Berkeley and there was a caller on saying that he thought the U.S. government should go set up outposts for uh, refugees, if you will, so that they don't have to... in, in a myriad of Central American countries <clears throat> so that they don't have to make the harsh journey to the border to, to deal with finding amnesty. And it's like, dude, like, what do you think the role of the U.S. government is? Like, we should just go build infrastructure in foreign countries and staff it with American workers with U.S. tax dollars so somebody can ring the doorbell and say, hey, I'd like to come to your country. Like, what like i i don't know anyway yeah there's, there's... you're you're in a unique ecosystem there i mean it's the <laughs> left of the left of the left right uh, it, it it's you know if if i think it's normal then i don't have to spend money on shrinks right, um... right, right. <laughs> so right. then how do you balance and I'll, i do i know you've got to go but how do you balance all of that uh public service against your your day-to-day -day, like the fact that you've got to get going to your next call I, I work too hard and too many yeah. hours and i my my husband is patient my son survived being raised uh and is now uh having you know an adult life of his own uh but really i am passionate about this stuff and i would really like to help all right well let me give you one more shot here any message to either who i imagine is mostly your client the, the real estate entrepreneur in the world, although you, you obviously have the public agencies or the, the broader California citizen, like where, where do we, where do we go from here? You know, I think, uh, for the broader California citizens, um, I would say what I say to everybody, which is if, if somebody who claims that they're an expert or a politician or whatever is, um, is trying to tell you something and you don't understand it, um, it's their problem, not yours. Um, if, if you don't understand it, there's a pretty good likelihood that what they're saying is either nonsense or actually harmful. And you should insist on uh, understandability as well as accountability. And both are pretty woefully um, short in supply. To developer clients, real estate clients, it is a land of new opportunity, uh, especially in the housing and mixed use space. Uh, to take advantage of newly created tools uh, that most cities and counties, and for that matter, consultants and real estate professionals aren't aware of. And so if you're looking at an opportunity, especially on a retail or office or parking lot site, even if it's not zoned for housing, um, there are different pathways for 
succeeding more quickly than have ever been in existence before now. So, um, you know, <laughs> you can you can contact one of our 25 folks or, or others who are in this business, but uh, uh, don't give up hope. Uh, and I, if I were you and if I had, you know, room to uh, make bets uh, in the real estate market today, it would be on uh, reasonably priced commercial property in uh, jurisdictions with uh, relatively high barriers to new housing uh, in the normal way, uh, but also a very strong market demand for housing. So that's my that's my parting advice. That's great. Uh, and do you want to leave any website or contact info or, or just tell people Google? <laughs> oh, sure. So Jennifer Hernandez, Holland and Knight, um, and uh, all my information is, uh, is ready uh, on the website for you. Great. Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time. I very much appreciate it. And to the listeners, if you if you like it, my production people tell me I always need to remind you to go ahead and rate the podcast. But Jennifer, thanks for your time. Hey, I really appreciate it, Kevin. Good luck. Thanks. Bye-bye.